If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. First, understand storytelling principles, then see how other writers have applied those principles, and finally, use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Crooked House so that we can study left brain stories. This 2017 film was directed by Giles Paquet Brenner from a screenplay by Julian Fellows, Tim Rose Price, and Giles Paquet Brenner. And of course, this is based on Agatha Christie's 1949 novel of the same name. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough. There will be spoilers in this season and a lot of them. So if you don't want to know, please go and watch the movie before you listen to the episode because we cannot talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And please help other writers find our show by leaving a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, we're studying left brain stories this season for both of us with slightly different aspects, but it's not a common term. So can you give us a bit of an explanation on what that means? Not a common term, I'll say. I've totally made it up. It's <laughs> it's my term. Uh, I've never seen it used anywhere else. Uh, in fact, I've never seen or heard or read about stories being talked about in this way at all. And listen, by the end of the season, you might think I am totally full of baloney. <laughs> or maybe this new angle, this new perspective that I'm bringing on stories and storytelling, maybe it'll deepen your understanding of the craft and of what it is you're doing when you sit down to write a story. So let me just start by explaining what I mean by left brain stories. And I'll do my best to be concise, but I have an open mic, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> I always say that everything in story exists in a hierarchy and that at the very top is character because nobody cares about what's happening unless they care about who it's happening to. And when you start to study stories in any real level of detail, very quickly, you realize that the plot is there to serve the development of the character. The protagonist is one way at the beginning and another way at the end, and they change or grow or develop, or perhaps it's our perception of them that changes actually, because of the events that the character has gone through in the process of the story. So it's a story's plot that causes the change in the character, or that causes the change in our perception of the character. And this is the case with the vast majority of stories that readers and viewers have fallen in love with over time and that have stood the test of time. Now, I do stand by that statement that everything in a story exists in hierarchy and that at the very top of the hierarchy is character and that plot is there to serve the character. I stand by that statement. Except <laughs> when it isn't, <laughs> when it doesn't. <laughs> 
So it's true, except when it's not. <laughs> there is a certain group of stories where the inverse is true. In these stories, the characters exist to serve the plot. And when that happens, the storytelling fundamentals play out a little differently. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the storytelling fundamentals no longer apply. So do not use this as your get out of jail free card. This does not give anybody an excuse to phone it in. What I am saying is that with left brain stories, some storytelling fundamentals shift slightly because they're stories that are designed to appeal to our heads, not our hearts. So for example, in a left brain story, the reader or viewer still needs to have empathy, but what they're empathizing with is different. And the way that we as writers create that empathy is different. Now I'm not talking about genre here, although to be fair, there are a lot of left brain stories in the crime genre. You know, these are all the murder mysteries in thrillers and in spy stories, but not all crime stories or all thrillers or spy or all spy stories are left brained and left brain stories can pop up in any genre. They just happen to pair really well with crime stories, thrillers, and spy stories. Now, could you have a left-brained love story? Sure. But I think it'd be really hard to pull off <laughs> because fans of the love story genre go to it for the emotion, not for the logic of the thing. You know, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, if Elizabeth Bennet was ruled by her head instead of her heart, it would be a really short book <laughs> and a really unsatisfying love story because she would have accepted Darcy's first proposal. That would have been the logical thing for her to do given her situation. But then they wouldn't have lived happily ever after because neither one of them would have grown the way that they needed to grow. Charlotte's decision to marry Mr. Collins is a logical, rational one, but it's not exactly a love story for the ages now, is it? So left brain stories are those that appeal to our intellect. There's some sort of puzzle to be solved. There are clues to follow. There are misdirections. There's a game being played between the author and the reader or viewer. And that is this, can the author outsmart the reader or will the reader solve the puzzle before the end of the story? And by the way, if you want a career writing these left brain stories, there can only be one answer to this question. And it's this, the author must outsmart the reader. In fact, the reader wants to be outsmarted, but fairly. The author has to win fair and square. That means that the reader must be given all the information. The reader must be given the opportunity to solve the puzzle first. Okie dokie. I'm starting us off with an easy one. Crooked House was written by the queen of mystery herself, Agatha Christie. Now, two little bits of trivia for you. This, um, I think it's the only film version, but Melanie, before we got on the call, Melanie said that there is another one. So I'm, one of us is right. I don't know. If this is not the only film version, then there's not many film versions of it. And this is the story that inspired Ryan Johnson when he created Knives Out. And the parallels between the stories are obvious. 
Christie's influence is clear. And in fact, Johnson himself does not deny it. Now the puzzles are different, but the setup is the same. This season, I'm focusing on high level storytelling principles. Uh, I might cover the same principle more than once, and I might not get through all the fundamentals. I don't know. My approach will be to watch each movie each week and see what it's a good example of. So one of the things that Agatha Christie does extremely well is to make sure her reader has all the information. All the clues usually are given, but I'm not going to talk about that because Melanie's going to do a deep dive on, on the clues and stuff. The other thing that Agatha Christie does, and that has become a staple of the mystery genre ever since, is to give us a big cast with several credible suspects. Sometimes they're all credible suspects. Now, during the last few seasons, I've been focusing on character development and cast design. One of the points I made, and I learned this from Stephen Pressfield, is that we want our cast to be as small and as interconnected as possible. This has to do with conflict and creating conflict, especially at the scene level. This is about the relationship triangles that we've talked about in past episodes, and really it makes logical sense. If the cast isn't interconnected or tightly connected in some way, then when conflict happens, as it must in stories that work, characters will just walk away from one another and your story will be over before it's begun. But in a mystery, the characters are often unconnected. They could be total strangers or they're loosely connected. Yet, they're still kept together somehow. Usually they're trapped together or stranded together. In Crooked House, the cast are family members, but they hate each other. I would say they are loosely connected, even though they're blood relatives. Their lives are not interwoven. They all live in the same house, but not by choice. Aristide Leonides, the patriarch of the family, is forcing them together. Clemency and Roger are the only ones who even want to leave, but while Aristide is alive, they can't. In And Then There Were None, Christie strands her cast of strangers together on Soldier Island. In Murder on the Orient Express, the strangers are stranded together on a train. In Death on the Nile, the strangers are stranded together on a ship. <laughs> you see a pattern forming here? <laughs> uh, the characters could also be villagers in a community. They're neighbors and they're caught up in the mystery by virtue of where they've chosen, chosen to build their homes. One of the things that Christie did is to have a really large cast, all or most of whom are viable suspects. This is different from other stories where you typically want the cast to be as small as possible. So in the episode we did on Death on the Nile, and that's way, way, way back in season two now, I cited research that has been done on Christie's novels and why we love them so much. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I don't really like Christie. She's not all that great. Remember, Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist of all time. And in terms of sales figures, she is third behind Shakespeare and the Bible. So she's pretty fancy. So the research that, uh, that these guys did showed that our conscious minds can only concentrate on between five and nine things at any given time. We cannot track more than nine things. So when we're presented with more than nine, we go into a hypnotic trance. 
So when Agatha Christie presents us with more than nine characters and more than nine plot lines, what she's doing is overloading our minds and putting us into a trance. So even though readers do want to try and solve the mystery, unless they're reading with a pen and paper and tracking all the clues along the way, there is simply too much information for us to process and remember. That's why we miss the salient clues. Now, if you have too few characters, it's too easy to solve the mystery. In The Girl on the Train, it's really easy to figure out who done it. However, in that case, I think it's an intentional decision by Paula Hawkins because what she does when it's at that moment when it's obvious to us who the, the villain is, what Hawkins does is flip the form of narrative drive from mystery to dramatic irony, and it works really well. All right. Now, I have to say this film version of Crooked House has fewer characters than the novel, but the plot itself is fairly true to the novel. I think there are about a dozen characters in the film, and while there might not be a whole lot of different plot lines per se, the characters do have their own backstories which contain possible motives for murdering Aristid. I still think the book is better than this particular film version, but anyway, moving right along. <laughs> now, if you listen to the show with any regularity, you have heard me go on ad nauseum about character dimension. And I have said that if your character is exactly who they appear to be, then your story's in trouble. And yeah, that's true, <laughs> except when it isn't. <laughs> but what's different about left brain stories is that a reader or viewer approaches the characters differently. Usually, we believe what the author is telling us about the character. So for example, when we first met Michael Corleone, we accepted, we believed that he was a war hero, that he had chosen to live an honest and upstanding life, and that he had chosen to not be part of his family's criminal behavior. We didn't question that introduction of him. That's why when the reality of Michael Corleone was revealed, it was so shocking to us. With left brain stories, readers don't believe anything that you tell them. In other words, when a reader meets a character for the first time, she's immediately suspicious because she knows that this character is going to be a suspect. So the reader doesn't accept any information about the character at face value. Now, more often than not in left brain stories, Characters are exactly who they appear to be, but the reader just doesn't believe it because they know that there's a guarantee here that at least one character will not be who they seem, and that's the murderer. And the person who solves the crime, whether it's a detective or you know whom, whomever it is, that character is able to see the other character's dimension in action. In other words, they can see who the characters really are. Now, sometimes there are two or three characters who aren't who they seem to be, and writers who can really get that to work in a mystery are onto something, because when the reader has two or three suspects that they cannot rule out until very late in the game, if at all, now that is a satisfying mystery. We want to get to the end of the book and think, 
Oh, of course. Of course that's who it is. Oh, I missed it. In Crooked House, well, certainly this film version of Crooked House, it is pretty easy to rule out most of the suspects because there's no mystery about them. Any lingering doubts that we might have had about who they are, uh, I think that's really because the acting is good and, and the way that, for example, Glenn Close presents Lady Edith. She presents Lady Edith in a way that we think, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something more here, but that's because she's amazing, not necessarily because there are contradictions in the script that she can play on. Now, I was really hoping I was going to have enough time to talk about how the characters in a left brain story exist to serve the plot, but uh, I think I will leave that for another episode. Otherwise, we'll be here all day because I can go on and on and on. But Melanie, I know you're following the clues for us this season. I cannot wait to hear what you have come up with. So let's have it. All right. So as Valerie mentioned, this season, I am following the clues, the motives, and also the murderer to see when they appear through the story and what they do to provoke the protagonist. The process I use to do this is not complex, but it is time consuming. And I can't emphasize enough that if you want to understand how mysteries work, then this is one of the best ways to dissect and understand the inner workings of the mystery. All right, so my advice is don't write a mystery if solving the mystery isn't the primary goal of your protagonist. Don't write a mystery if you can't or if you aren't willing to do the work to plan and write an intricate plot. Now, I've heard stories about Agatha Christie's method of writing, which was that she would write the story from the beginning to the end and when she got close to the end, she would decide who the murderer was and then would go back and tweak the story to suit the outcome. Now, if that is true, it's a sign of the skill that she had and most of us probably don't have that skill set, right? So I really do think that these are stories that need planning and need consideration. Now, I've just recently, you know, as based on our topic for this season, I've been doing my research and I, I love Anthony Horowitz and I think he's one of the most compelling murder mystery writers alive today and he plans his stories. Now, if you've read Magpie Murders, that book took him 10 years to plan and that is a masterful, masterful story and it is a dual mystery line over two different types of time periods there are word puzzles. There are a whole range of things in there. And he is a smart man and he does this for a living and it still took him 10 years to plan that novel. So I hope I'm making my case for the level of study that you need to do or I believe you need to do and also to justify the amount of time that it takes to actually analyse these stories. My final piece of advice before I go on and do a bit of analysis, don't write mysteries if you're not willing to understand them, right? And these are really key points. These are not stories that you can just decide, I'm going to write a murder mystery. You really do need to understand the variety of these stories and how they work. Right, so back to how I analyse and learn. So what, I, what I'm going to do this season and what I have done in the past is I watch or read a story through once. 
I pay attention to as much as I can, but I generally just try to enjoy the story that's being told. I always have a go at working out the who, what, when and why of a story um, with varying levels of success. And the stories I love the most, and Valerie referred to this before, are the ones where I can't work out who done it. I love that. I don't want to work out who done it. <laughs> so after the first viewing, I watch or read the story again, but this time with a spreadsheet open. And I record who is in a scene, what the clues were, and where the investigator is, and where the antagonist is. And I summarize that in a spreadsheet. I then color code the characters and the clues. And I then start another column. And I do the same about the story, but I make my descriptions generic. So I will label things like victim one or suspect one, two, three, or four. So as an example, for the opening scene of Hooked House, I wrote, suspect one gives victim one an injection and kisses him. We see the suggestion of murder. Now I do this for every scene and it does take time. Crooked House this week took me eight hours just to analyse and it wasn't as complete as I would like it but it did reveal some interesting insights and problems with this particular version of the story in, in my opinion and I haven't read the book, I've only just watched this, um, this movie. So on my first round of viewing this week, I had worked out that it was Josephine who killed Aristard. And I worked it out when she told Charles that Aristard had stopped her doing ballet lessons. And that was at about scene 17 and at the 36 minute mark. Now that's a problem for the story that I could work it out that fast. And it's problematic because Charles, the investigator, was suspecting Edith even after Josephine fell out of the treehouse. And he truly did not have any idea who the murderer was until Sophia read Josephine's diary out loud to him in the last minute of the movie. I don't want to be smarter than the detective. It left me feeling very frustrated with him as an investigator. That and other things left me feeling very frustrated with him as an investigator. But I do think that that's problematic. Now, understanding how and why I worked that out is really interesting and I kind of did that as I went through the analysis once I had worked it out. So what's going not wrong but what what could be done better is what I was trying to look at when I was doing my analysis. Now, I've I think there were several issues with Crooked House, but the top three that, I, that I've identified are that Charles, the investigator, doesn't investigate. Secondly, I think the love story with Sophia gets in the way. And most importantly, the third reason is the only other family member I thought was capable of murder was Lady Edith. But that petered out once it was very clear that it was Josephine. So that petered out at about that 36-minute mark for me. Now, at the beginning of the movie, there is a cast of 11 suspects, and that's including the murderer. They all have ample time and they all have a potential motive. But Charles doesn't investigate any of them or any of the suspects or any of the clues even further. 
So for example, Clemency volunteers the information that she's a senior research chemist specialising in poisons. We can see that she mothers her childish and temperamental husband, Roger, who, by the way, idolises his father, who's been murdered. Now, Clemency's background would have put her high on my list to go and gather further information. But Charles doesn't pull that thread at all. In fact, we learn later that everybody in the house knew how to poison Aristard because he told them all. So it really takes the wind out of any motive or any suspicion that we may have about the characters. All right, now let's have a quick look at Roger's behaviour. Roger was never a contender for the murderer because of his admiration of his father and the special treatment he received. So perhaps Roger's behaviour was a red herring, but what was his motivation? He was more likely to murder Brenda, but he is really a coward in my view. So that's just some examples of where I think the investigation and things that were set up never really paid out in the movie and I thought that that was a fault, especially when you want mystery and you want to learn new and interesting things about the character as you move through the story. Now let's just have a look at the clues because some of these are not well placed. We learn very quickly that Lady Edith can fire guns. She has traps, poison and holly to deal with the moles in the garden. And Sophia tells Charles that she thought Edith loved and hated Aristard. But we didn't see any of this on the screen. But we also see that Edith avoids Charles's questions. So again, none of that comes to fruition and there's clues there that we could further investigate. Now, it does set up some of the things that happen at the end of the story, particularly the poisons, but we go from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie and nothing in between with that particular thread or those particular clues. Now, let's just quickly have a look at the will. Now, in my opinion, the will is not a clue and nor is it a motive because everybody believes that they are provided for equally. Now, the will moves around in the story, but at no stage, I think, do we ever believe that that is a motive or that someone will benefit more from anybody else when the different versions come to light. There are opportunities where you could put someone else in the spotlight ready for murder, So especially after they find out that the will is not signed, which means that Brenda is the sole recipient of or the sole beneficiary of all of the wealth, but nothing happens to Brenda. Really, nothing happens a great deal to Brenda, nor is anyone set up to really look at killing her. And then we find the other version of the will right at the end, which, again, everybody seems relatively happy with and would not be emotive or doesn't seem to incite anybody else to go and take drastic action, even though they are left with nothing. Anyway, the will is not, I think, well used in this version of the story. And then there's the memoir. Now, this could reveal some juicy information that someone doesn't want discovered, but the only people who know about its existence are Brenda, Mr Brown and Sophia, and none of them stand to be disadvantaged by knowing what's in the actual memoir itself. 
So let's just quickly have a look at Sophia. So she has a special bond with her grandfather, but no one in the family appears to resent her for it. And to be honest with you, I don't think anyone really seems to be aware of it either. That's not mentioned. Um, No one's jealous. So it doesn't actually paint her or put her in a position where someone's going to set her up or it's her motive to actually do away with her grandfather. Now let's also look at the needle and the solutions that were used to actually kill Aristard. Now they were where Brenda left them. They don't prove it was Brenda who put the eye drops into the insulin and Aristard told everybody that if they really wanted to do away with him, mixing the solutions would be a way of killing him. So it's not special knowledge. Now, Brenda and Brown's affair could be a clue, but it's actually the chief inspector who gets excited about this. Everyone else really just seems to accept the affair, except maybe Roger, but he's just sort of a bit jealous about Brenda. But again, it peters out. And Sophia even believes that her grandfather had given the pair his blessing to have the affair. So again, there's nothing really that happens with this piece of knowledge. Now I have talked about the will and especially the second will and it's the second will that comes in in the middle of the story or towards the end of the story that provides Brenda with a small allowance but hands over control of the family wealth to Sophia. But again, this arrives too late in the movie to be a motive for the original murder, even though Sophia did know about its existence before its arrival. But is it a clue? Well, I don't think so because of the special bond. It took the special bond took Sophia's motive away. All right, so <laughs> let's think about those clues in the context of the murderer and tracking the murderer through the story. And why it was very easy for me to actually work out why it was Josephine that was the murderer and maybe not everybody else. And it really has to do with the quality and the quantity of information that you get from Josephine about her and about the situation. And the quality and the quantity of the information she provides to Charles is way and above the information that he gets through his own initial investigations. And I'll just give you some examples of that. And this is a really, by tracking the murderer and the clues and the information that she gives to the investigator, it's a really good way to understand maybe why things weren't as mysterious as they could be. All right, so here are some dot points that I've put together about the clues with regards to Josephine. Now, When Josephine meets Charles, she says to him, now that Grandpa is dead, I'm the cleverest person in the house. Now, that is a true statement, and I don't think we actually doubt her when she says that. We also see, and she also tells us, that she writes everything in her notebook. So the notebook becomes a really, really important piece of evidence, and Charles doesn't do anything about it at this point. All right, she also says that she's a detective and she explains to him what she would do if she was investigating and that is in the first meeting. Now, that level of detail that she gives 
is above and beyond what all the other suspects give to Charles. Now, you could say that that's a setup. You could say that that level of detail is a distraction and the vagaries that the other suspects um, provide or don't provide are really uh, an avenue for further investigation. But the fact that Charles doesn't investigate means that this information is probably weighted more heavily in the story. Now, when Josephine meets Charles for the second time, she reveals that she hated her grandfather because he stopped her ballet lessons. So she's revealing her motive and it's a very specific motive and she's the only one who reveals a very specific motive or that we see has a level of specificity about it. She reveals that Brenda and Brown are having an affair she lies about the love letters and she know and the fact that she knows where they're hidden. So she is actually directing attention to the red herrings that she's creating and Charles falls for it. But she also says that no one pays attention to her and this is important because it is also a big giveaway, but I'll explain why a little bit later on, so stay with me. We also see snippets then of Josephine moving around the house and then until the night of the family dinner when Josephine sets up Charles, she does this so that he can later reveal Brenda and Mr Brown's love letters to Scotland Yard. So she is a clever kid. She is manipulating him all the time throughout the movie and he falls for it. Now shortly after the dinner, Josephine is injured because she falls out of the treehouse And this is where there's an assumption made that someone has tried to kill her. And this whole escapade is included to suggest that Josephine is targeted because of her notebook. So there is incriminating evidence in her notebook. And Josephine is the cleverest person in the house. And all her actions and deceptions are evidence to support what she actually does and how she carries out the murders. But it also highlights the importance of the notebook and the fact that no one actually tried to look at it right up until the point where she falls out of the treehouse. And it is really when Josephine returns from the hospital that she ratchets up her plans. Josephine is delighted that Brenda and Brown were arrested and she knew her plan to manipulate Charles had worked. She believes that Nanny has taken her notebook and therefore knows that Josephine killed her grandfather and Brenda and Mr Brown are innocent. So then Nanny gets poisoned by the hot chocolate, which Josephine said is made so that Nanny can drink it herself. So all of these things that Josephine set up are now being played out in a way that no other character in the movie does. And the most fascinating part of the movie happens when Charles takes Josephine away to question her because he knows that she knows who the murderer is and he quizzes her and again she leads him on a wild goose chase and she does this deliberately. Now when I look at the volume of information and the content of Josephine's interactions with Charles, it becomes very clear that the only relevant clues provided to him are from Josephine. She also provides him with red herrings because she lies, she backtracks, 
and she tells him outright that she is smarter than him. So he should be onto that really quickly. However, Charles's biggest mistake is that he assumes a child wouldn't murder her grandfather and he assumes Josephine will tell him the truth when he asks her to and he assumes that she is the target of the murderer. Now, this is a key point for writers of mysteries. Good writers use assumptions to their advantage. They also use their knowledge of people's unconscious biases and they divert your attention away from the assumptions so that you don't question them. Now, I've recently read two fantastic murder mysteries where assumptions and biases were used to great effect and my attention was focused elsewhere so that I didn't stand a chance of working out who'd done it. Now, I'm going to be looking out for these types of techniques this season, so if you can spot them while you're following along, that will be, I think, a great learning point or something to watch out for. And I think assumptions and biases are best used when your attention isn't drawn to them. And again, I think this is another fault in Crooked House. Josephine draws our attention very early in the story and there must be a reason why Josephine is saying the things that she said. So, all right. So to finish up, when you track clues, motives and the murderer through the story, you start to get a fantastic idea of how the story works. And I'm super excited to do that this season. It does take time, but you do learn a lot. And I'm hoping to share everything that I've learned this season with you here on the podcast. When you started... I can't remember exactly what you said, but something like Josephine and Lady Edith are the only two who were even possible suspects, real suspects. And Mm. I kind of had that feeling too, but we were both right because Lady Edith does murder in the end. Yes. Oh, yes, she does. Yes, she does. Yes. Yeah, completely. She does. And so she's capable, right? So we're not surprised Um, that she does what she does because we know that at the beginning that she's probably capable of murder. But I think she's the only one, apart from Josephine, that you actually get a feeling would be capable and would be willing to do it for the right reasons. Well, the right reasons, you know, the the right reasons to murder somebody. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not that there's any right reasons, but you know what I mean? (laughs) All right. So the action step then, moving right along okay. before the lawyers call. Before I kill somebody <laughs> for the right reasons. All right. So today's action step. No matter what kind of story you're writing, I want you to take a look at your cast and how they are connected because they must be connected somehow. And that connection has to be tight, unbreakable, actually, at least until the end of the story. In other words, they can't just walk away from each other. So if you've got two characters who are married, sure, they can get divorced, but that's not going to be their first reaction. They're connected. So so there must be some reason why your characters can't just wander away from one another. In your story, is there a natural connection between your characters? Like I said, maybe they're married to each other. Or do you, as the writer, have to impose a connection? 
uh, like, do you have to strand them all on Soldier Island, for example? Anyway, so take a look at your cast of characters and the whatever ties that are binding them together. All right, well, that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss The Dry. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on X, Instagram and threads at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to get my tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook, Instagram and threads under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.